0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, for the first time since the second wave took off, Canada has seen COVID-19 cases drop. Does that mean the restrictions are on the way out too? Well, we'll talk about that. A couple was charged after they traveled to the Yukon to skip the line and get a COVID-19 vaccine. Community Services Minister John Stryker from the Yukon will join us to talk about that. And Canada's ambassador says it's time for us to let go of the Keystone XL pipeline. Will we? Let's talk about it. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about COVID and let's talk about the impact that it's having with uh, us in the last little while. And this is a rather uh, ominous anniversary, I suppose. It's been exactly one year since COVID-19 arrived in Canada. To suggest the pandemic has transformed the lives of millions of Canadians would be a massive understatement. Blake Lambert explains.
1: Since March 2020, mask wearing has become the norm in this country. Schools and businesses have closed or gone virtual. Lockdowns and travel restrictions were imposed while major sporting and other events were canceled. There's been a seismic shift of employees working from home. People are asked to physically distance even from loved ones. Jack Jedwab is the president of the Association for Canadian Studies. He says the biggest change to Canadians' daily lives has been the isolation from friends, family and co-workers. Blake Lambert, the Canadian Press.
0: So on this anniversary, this one-year anniversary of COVID in Canada, uh, we're looking at the numbers here. And for the first time since the second wave took off, Canada is now seeing a sustained drop in the number of people testing positive for the coronavirus every day. That's a signal that restrictions in the country's two largest provinces, including ours, may be making a difference. As a matter of fact, as of Thursday night, the national seven day average of COVID 19 infections reported daily, a measure that kind of smooths out those single day blips, uh, sat at just over 6,000 cases. That's down 26% from the all time high of over 8,000 uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So, are, are we bending the curve? Are we doing what we're supposed to do? Are we on the road to to knocking this virus down? Well, let's uh, bring Chris Bach back into the conversation. Chris, of course, is research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and uh, Modeling S- Specialist of Infectious Disease at the University of Waterloo. Uh, Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Glad you could be with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill.
0: Are you encouraged by these numbers?
1: Yeah, I think this is really good news. Um, so I think what we're seeing is, is the restrictions that, that were imposed on Boxing Day in Ontario um, are starting to have an effect. Uh, and it looks like, you know, a similar story in many other provinces. Uh, there's a few uh, cases where cases are going up like none of it, but, but overall it, it's a good uh, downward trend that we've observed recently.
0: I I always, as you've reminded me to do, when we start looking at numbers here, and here we are on the 25th of January, and we see the numbers are down, and that is good news, obviously. But I always look back 14 days to say, okay, what was going on? Uh, Not much of anything, I guess, because we were a couple of weeks into the lockdown by then, weren't we?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, as you know, it takes two or three weeks for for changes, uh, restrictions to show an effect in the case numbers. So you know, I think what happened is, is you know, after, the bo- after Boxing Day, uh, um, uh, you know, some of these new rollouts uh, kind of helped gradually. It's like I've mentioned, it's a small run on a big ship, right? It takes time to turn, uh, and um, we've been turning it for long enough to see an impact now.
0: All right, so what, what do these numbers tell us? I mean... Anybody who's been out, and I, I, not many of us are going very far these days, of course, but uh, did a little driving around the area, of course, on the weekend, and uh, there's not much traffic anywhere these days. I guess that's one of the reasons because so many of the stores are closed. Is it, is it that separation, that forced separation because of these closures that that is actually causing this reduction?
1: Yeah, I think the closures of, of non-central businesses and probably also the school closures have helped uh, bring this about. Um, you know, it's always difficult to disentangle what exactly causes what because we only have this one endpoint to look at, which is cases. Mm-hmm. So there aren't many controlled studies you can look at, but my guess is that those two things are contributing, um, and also the restrictions on large gatherings of, on gatherings, of course, uh, which are having effect. And the other yeah. thing to remember is that cool. yeah, so, so, so what we're looking for is you know we're always trying to keep the health system, uh, within its capacity, uh, so we're looking for not only a, a decline, but a continuing decline over time to get us back below the uh, the ICU numbers, where you know, uh, w- w- which are considered you know uh, that we can that health system can deal with with that. So we're still above that point, that 300 IC, uh, ICU occupancy. So we want to kind of keep this going as long as we can to, to get those numbers back uh, below that. So it's it's not just about the uh, the curve flattening. Uh, but it's also about cases continuing to decline until we can get these down to a more manageable level, which will take a bit more time.
0: I wonder if that was one of the contributing factors in, in getting people to kind of, you know, toe the line here. Uh- I mean, the mobile hospital setup should actually be a, a you know a big red flag for an awful lot of us. I know there's one at Joe Brandt Hospital in the Burlington area uh, that they've set up, and the prime minister talked about that last week, about two more that were going to be set up, I think, uh, someplace else. And uh, that, that seemed to be off our radar for a little while, the impact that it was actually having. On the healthcare system and on hospitals Uh, but maybe maybe that's starting to resonate right now when we understand that uh, because what most doctors have told us and most administrators of those hospitals told us last week on the program Chris was that yet you're right it's not in the danger zone yet but boy we're close and and if we don't get these numbers down uh, they were very concerned about the impact it was going to have it seems as if they got the message
1: yeah I think that's correct Uh, and the other thing that that we have to keep in mind and, and why it's so important to get our ducks in the line now is, is that we had this more transmissible variant, which is circulating. You know, we've, we've had this outbreak in Barry. Uh, it might be in the community. Uh, and, you know, this variant has spread in other countries. There's no reason to think we can't see more of that in Canada. So, so because of that, you know, we always got to be one step ahead of the game, think ahead a little bit. And so uh, it's, it's really important for us to um, keep those cases down and, and, and get the case numbers down so that this uh, variant, if it does start to spread more rapidly, doesn't give us a kind of a one-two punch and really push our, our, our health care system up, up, over the edge.
0: Let me ask you about that. I'm glad you brought up that that variable. Actually, there are two of them. There's a South African one, too, that I don't think we've seen too much evidence, if any, in Canada, but we certainly have seen the one that uh, they're calling the UK variable. Uh, you're a numbers guy. Is there a concern here that there could be a third wave?
1: Yeah, I think you could call it that. I mean, in, in reality, of course, there's there's all kind of, Bumps throughout the the fall and winter, right? So we yeah. certainly we had a bump before in the seven day average, and now we're having another bump. Um, so um, and you know, there's no clear definition of a third wave. But what I think could happen uh, is that uh, if if the variant does spread here as as quickly as uh, as it could, then we could see the case declines, you know, stop, and then cases could start to increase again. So we want to make sure that if that does happen, it's increasing from as low a level as possible, right? Uh, because, you know, if, if, if cases were to start to shoot up today, uh, you know, that that would be much worse than if cases, you know, drop 80 percent and then start to decline. That gives us that that delay, that delay gives us a bit more breathing space, uh, a bit more time to get more people vaccinated uh, and that buys valuable time for the healthcare system. So um, uh, so, I, you know, I wouldn't say it's a third wave, but it, it could cut short this decline that uh, we've been observing over the past couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, we kind of had that discussion back in the springtime last year, didn't we? Uh, when they started at that time talking about a second wave and the experts said this is not the second wave we haven't finished the first one yet look at the numbers here folks Uh, so I I, I agree with you I think we just need to focus on where we are right now but the concern of course on the very example I guess is a classic example of that because of the uh, especially the one uh, LTC up there that had just about everybody in the place who works there or is a resident there uh, has tested positive for this how does something like that spread so quickly in the community I mean you would think okay it's at that particular location, uh, Nessa Road in Barrie, but where is it going? It's, is it because people that work there are going outside to uh, other parts of the community? I mean, it's, it's it's a little frightening to think, hey, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, but this all of a sudden has reared its ugly head in, in that community.
1: Mm. Yeah, so, you know, chances are, if they first noticed it in an LTC, most of the residents are, well, basically none of them are traveling, right? So this was brought yeah. in from somewhere else, and there's a good chance that it was already in the community, uh, and then it moved into the LTC facility. Um, so, um, so, you know, for every variant that you're able to, to find and analyze, there might be others that are already circulating. So I think that's the kind of scenario we're looking at. You know, my guess is that uh, it's, you know, it's already circulating in the community and, and it has been for a while. Um, and as you know, if, if the case is grow exponentially, then it looked, for a while nothing is really happening. Two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16 16 becomes 32, and, and the numbers get bigger and bigger each time you double it. So, so at some point there's a, a, a rapid ramp-up of cases. Uh, we're not at that point yet, but um, uh, it could happen uh, in in February sometime.
0: What's your read on the, t- on the school situation? A number of schools, of course, are still closed because of the, the uh, edict that came down from the provincial government last week that said they're going to do this for another week or two at least. Uh, I've had people on both sides of this debate, Chris, and and they are as adamant as possible could be that, no, they shouldn't be closed. Yes, they should be closed, and it's making a difference. Where are you on that?
1: You know, it's such a complicated issue, and, and, you know, the answer really depends upon what are our bigger objectives as a society, right, because closure has, you know, consequences for the parents and for the children's development, and it's really difficult to... um, you know, how do you weigh uh, preventing uh, some cases of COVID now versus uh, a slowdown in a child education that could last years? It's difficult to weigh them. And there, there is no, there, you know, that, that's, I think, some of why there's so many opinions about it, because it really depends on what criteria you are and what you're saying should be a priority. Um, you know, what I think is that, you know, schools do play some role in transmission, Um, children are are not as transmissible as adults, but they are transmissible, and and they get it about as often as adults. Uh, And you do have, you know, kids put together for a long part of the day, and and, uh, even outside on the way to school, back from school, uh, there are options for transmission. So if you want to control COVID, I think school closure can be uh, uh, part of your tool to do that. Um, And, uh, but, you know, but, you know, I don't... Be honest i don't have a should opinion on this i don't think we should or shouldn't do it i can tell you it will control it will help control the epidemiology um but i can't tell you what's going to get better for the long term for you know uh for you know canada's children and us as a whole in five or ten years that's a tricky question um i do think they should be open if, if we can and to do that we need to get those rapid saliva based tests available to the schools distributed to schools so that you know if there are symptomatic kids we can um, identify cases quickly uh, and deal with it. That would be the best scenario. And I, I think that's maybe the third position is that we should be focusing on public health fundamentals. Uh, um, and lockdown in the community will will help us maintain schools, keep them open, and rapid antigen um, testing, saliva-based testing will, will help us to, to stop outbreaks from spreading in schools. And that's really what we should be doing.
0: Well, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you've hit on all the points there, and, and those who are, are adamant that the schools should not be closed, uh, they do bring up the long-term effects, uh, not just the education, which is very important, of course, but the mental health aspects, uh, the, the sociological aspects, and, and those are all very, very germane to the conversation as well. But these numbers we're talking about this morning, Chris, seem to indicate that you know, it might have been part of the, at least a contributing factor in the reduction in numbers we're seeing.
1: I think that's true. Um, uh you know, we haven't done controlled studies in Ontario on this, but like in other populations that are similar, uh, such as the UK, for example, there, uh, uh, you know, there have been studies of, of school closure, and it does seem to be, it does seem to have an effect. You know, it's like anything else; it, it does, it's not a lo- it's not enough on its own. Uh, typically, you need a combination of interventions to flatten the curve, but it is, it, it can be effective um and so so my guess is that that's you know the, the recent downturn in ontario it is a you know the school control closure did contribute to that decline that we saw over the past few weeks
0: I, i'm not going to be so naive as to ask uh, do you think we're out of the woods i think we've got a long way to go we understand that but a 26 percent reduction in uh, just a couple of weeks is pretty significant uh trending now are we are we are we trending towards not necessarily beating this thing but at least getting back to the where we were a few months ago where we can have some sense of normalcy uh, aka having some stores open and having people circulate again just to, to, in minimal ways anyway.
2: Yeah
1: you know I, I think that the problem of this new variant uh, and the slow vaccine rollout are going to uh, make that uh, it, it won't be as rosy as a picture uh, uh, for getting back to normal. We're basically in a, race, we're in a race with vaccines against the variant now. So we have to vaccinate people as soon as possible before the variant spreads too much. Um, now, uh, you know, a month is probably too soon for us to say we're out of the woods. But I'm thinking maybe uh, if the current phase one plans for vaccination are successful and they do get um, all the LTC residents and uh, uh, and healthcare workers and the First Nations vaccinated by the end of March. Then you know these are really uh, the, the most vulnerable groups, especially the elderly uh, and the Indigenous, uh, the First Nations. Um, so then I think we'll be looking at a point where you know maybe we we decide uh, it is time to reopen schools and uh, uh, reopen some businesses because the death rate is, is dropping. So I'm hoping we'll we'll be at that point. But I think. Uh, one month is probably too soon for that to happen because of this variant is going to slow rollout out um, you know earliest I'm thinking is probably March for that
0: uh, funny you should mention that about the vaccinations of course this being the week that we're not getting any uh, vaccines uh, de- delivered to Canada which is uh, we're told a minor setback I-, I hope they're right about that Chris it's always great to get your perspective on this thanks so much for spending some time with us
1: Yeah, thanks again, Bill. Yeah,
0: have a good day. Okay, take care and uh, stay well. Chris Bach, of course, from uh, University of Waterloo. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the week, obviously, that we're not going to be getting a supply of vaccines, and there's a lot of angst about that. Uh, And people are reacting in different ways to the vaccination program. Uh, Last week, you may recall, uh, we brought you a story from London, England, uh, about a number of people that are actually planning vaccine vacations uh, this is this is for the well-to-do. I mean, because this is not inexpensive, and and they actually book a week's holidays. And you know, the, usually do the United Air and Emirates, and you get vaccinated and you can stay at a resort and everything else. And we thought, hey, wait a second here, uh, that's not going on in other parts of the world. But well, yeah, it is. People are jumping the queue by going to different regions. In fact, one of them is up in the Yukon Territories. A cabinet minister there says a couple from outside the Yukon traveled to a remote community in that territory to get their dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, he's upset about this the community is upset about this with very good reason as well uh that's uh john Stryker that we're talking about of course uh mr Stryker is the uh, uh community service minister for the yukon territories and he joins us on the bill kelly show to talk about this john thank you so much for the time glad you could be with us today morning bill uh were you surprised when you heard this john
2: oh yes yeah, surprised and angry
0: yeah I, I mean, we've heard of this, and I know that, you know, we, we've covered some stories over the last couple of weeks as well about snowbirds that were heading down to Florida and Arizona and getting vaccinated, and, and the locals are getting pretty ticked off about this whole thing. Uh, but, you know, for somebody, and I I know you haven't divulged exactly where these people came from, and it's some other part of the country, surely, but to to find some little remote place like this to go and get their vaccination, I mean, that's that's the, the height of, of just... You gall, isn't it, to suggest, you know, we, we deserve to go to the front of the line.
2: Yeah, it felt very selfish. I should let you know that over the weekend I got a couple more details. I was told that one of the people presented an Ontario health card and one of the, the couple presented a British Columbia health care card. And, and the place where we're talking about is the community of Beaver Creek. Mm-hmm. And if you were to drive the Alaska Highway and just before you leave the Yukon, you would come to beaver creek it's a community of about 100 people 100 plus and it's the most canada's most westerly, westerly community and and we were we we've set up these mobile clinics in the yukon and you know we prioritized our long term uh, healthcare facilities and then we prioritized, well, at the same time, our frontline healthcare workers. And then after that, we prioritized our communities. And we have mobile vaccination teams that are going around to each community and doing a day or two in each community. And so with Beaver Creek, just 100 people, we were doing a day there. So these folks had to plan it out. Yeah. And, and, yeah, we're, we're very upset at them.
0: Maybe, let's back up a little bit. I want to talk about your program and how you're implementing it. Because uh, now we're in southern Ontario here, in London and Hamilton markets where we're broadcasting, a pretty populous area. And, and you yeah. know, that has its own challenges. But you're, as you just mentioned, John, I mean, you're, it's a remote area here with one community here, one community there. Uh, geography plays a big part in this. How's the program rolling out and how effective has it been?
2: Well, it's great. First of all, let me say thanks to the rest of Canada on your show because what we understood right away was that small communities due to their remoteness won't have deep healthcare systems. So if if COVID comes in and, you know, we saw this happening in Nunavut, then it can overwhelm very quickly. So you have to be careful. So we, when we worked out with the other provinces and territories, we, the, the territories got enough vaccine to help protect. So the whole of the Yukon, 42,000 people and, and, so, we, we started with our small communities because of that risk. So, from a, from a vaccine perspective, this, is, this was there so that we can just reduce that risk. And we've been getting
3: uh,
2: 60, 70, uh, 80, even 90% uptake on our first go around. So, it's been been great the the teams the the vaccination teams and our communities have been doing the right thing and we've been working hard to try and even advertise it so we've been it's not like it was a mystery that we were heading to beaver creek because we put on this big campaign saying hey we'll be in this community on this day and we'll be in this next one on these days so we, you know that for us was just trying to reach out to our citizens for everyone that wanted to get vaccinated that they would and and this couple you know, from our perspective, saw that and saw opportunity. But effectively, what they did was they put the community at risk. They were supposed to be self-isolating. Mm-hmm. Because when you travel to the Yukon, one of the ways that we've kept all of the, the case count so low is by saying if you, if you come back to the Yukon or you're coming to the Yukon, you've got to isolate for 14 days. And this couple came two days later, chartered a flight, and went to Beaver Creek.
0: And we're on their way out, I guess, when uh, somebody caught up with them, is that right yeah,
2: so what I was told is that um, the after they got vaccinated in the clinic the th- there was something that they said that made the the mobile clinic wonder, you know it, it just raised a suspicion. The mobile clinic then called up the motel where they had claimed that they were working, so they what they said to us or said to the clinic was that they're there living in the community uh uh recently arrived and and then yeah we would vaccinate them and then so the clinic called up the motel and the motel said uh told them they didn't know who the the couple were so then what the clinic did was they called up our uh enforcement folks from the civil emergencies measures act they went to try and find them at the at the airport coming back on that charter flight but the charter flight had already landed so then they had a suspicion who they might be because they've got these declaration forms. They went mm-hmm. to the hotel where they were supposed to be staying in Whitehorse. They'd already checked out. Then the uh, enforcement officers had the foresight to go back to the airport and look because there was a domestic flight heading out, and they found them in the boarding lounge.
0: And, and by the way, this is uh, if you're, you're caught doing this, as these people were uh, you should tell our listeners John that you don 't just get your somebody 's finger wagged in your face for doing this there 's a penalty for this isn 't there
2: yeah, although bill you know okay so we our enforcement officials charge them under our act, but our act is pretty old, and so it, you know the 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 charge is for uh, failing to self isolate and failing to follow their declaration, so we charge them with what we could, but we also advise the RCMP so as soon as like we and then I it's out of my hands and and now the RCMP are looking at it and we'll see what they find. Um, yeah. yeah. So they were charged, but I, I want to say that that uh, our fines are are not huge. They're they're only five hundred dollars per offense, and it, there's the possibility of some jail time, but that all would have to happen through a court. So you know like. Like, the act is old, and in this case, I think we uh, are, yeah, our frustration and, and and sort of outrage at what has happened here uh, is, yeah, the, the, the people will get, uh, have this charge against them, but really, we want to, what we want to say to people is that, is that, you know, as canadians we should be looking after each other during the pandemic and we don't want this kind of behavior because it's just putting our communities at risk
0: well and that's part of the problem and and you know we've seen this happen well not with the vaccination but with some of the other aspects of various levels of shutdown that we've had here in southern ontario i was going to ask if it's the same in the yukon where some jurisdictions john have got to the point as you know where they're actually actually asking now for proof of residence like you can't come into my restaurant and in your case you can't get vaccinated show me that you live here uh, and, and yeah, so be, I, I think we should, we we're serious I mean, about no this. No one,
2: no one understood that someone would go to this length, or we didn't understood. We didn't anticipate that someone mm-hmm. would do this. And and these communities are small communities, and mm-hmm. and so you know we will now put in place measures to try and be more rigorous with people that show up. And I, so you know I hope this never happens again, and I hope no Canadian would try to do this again, but and and in the Yukon bill, we've been lucky we've had seventy cases, but that's because we've put in place measures everybody's been doing the right thing that, that that so when someone comes to the territory, we ask people to isolate for fourteen days that That is what we think has kept us safer and and we just don't want to risk the 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 numbers of cases that happen elsewhere because it would just be too much for us to manage.
0: Well, the last thing you want in anybody's jurisdiction, really, is to you know to import this from other parts of the country or other parts of the world. I mean, that's that's right. a, b- a big concern in a situation like that. So, I mean, your your concern and, and your community's concerns about this, John, are, are well-placed, obviously, because of what's going on. But talk talk to me yeah. about the numbers it, it, and the impact that the virus has had on, on, on that area in the Yukon. Uh, obviously, this is the one-year anniversary, I, I'm sure you know, of the, yeah, first, for the first case day. in Canada. Um, and one year after the fact, as we look back on this right now, I, I guess there's an argument to be made that maybe, maybe all of us, including some, you know, medical professionals, maybe didn't take it as seriously or didn't understand the severity of it uh, to the point that they should. Uh, but hindsight is always twenty twenty in situations like that. But did your community rally to behind the, all this and follow the protocols and, and make sure that they could flatten the curve, or, as the phrase was?
2: Yeah, we so,
0: um
2: – so – First thing for us is that um, we had we were about to host the 50th anniversary of the Arctic Winter Games, and we had to cancel them. And even when we did, it wasn't because we thought COVID was coming here. It was just that the risk of COVID meant that if if one of the athletes, young athletes, had a cough, we would have to quarantine the whole team and probably all the chaperones. And you know, like it just the logistics went through the roof. So so our first thing was to cancel the games which was just gut wrenching for us as a community. So everyone understood about covid very quickly because that those sorts of games where we would host all of the arctic countries it, it's such a big deal. And So we all understood about covid quickly and and we've you know I I won't say that everyone agrees here I think you know the Yukon is full of diverse opinions but but by and large, uh, people have done the right thing in the territory. And and I think we're, uh, we feel lucky. We feel lucky because we're, we're, we have enough vaccines for people. We feel lucky because we haven't had the cases come through, but it, it, it's come at a cost. And that cost is, you know, like our, just like everywhere else, our our tourism sector is, has been hard, hard hit and, 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 you know, a lot of families here would want to connect outside and visit and, or, or have kids come back, uh, you know, during the, the winter break for, for university, from university. And, and, and so there's, there's, there's a cost to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we feel good about what we've done because we've managed to keep the case count really quite low uh, to 70 uh, over the year. And we've had a few, you know, moments, and, and every time, sort of a, a, a bit of a resurgence happens, and when we adjust the rules a bit, you know, we're all we're all, you know, sitting on the edge of our seat, just hoping that we've got it under, uh, kept it uh, tight, and so far so good. And so, you know, if I had to give a shout out, it would be to you, Conners, broadly
0: uh we've had anti mask displays i mean as you say people are entitled to opinions but uh you know you can be against it but you still better wear one and uh have you had a lot of pushback up in in your area john because of this
2: um well uh we've like i say bill there's there the yukon is a is a place where where people really feel like they're 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 living their own life um and 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 it has kind of that 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 mindset about it. But when it comes to masks, it's been pretty good. I mean, I'm I'm the minister responsible for emergencies, mm-hmm. and so I get to hear a lot of uh, opinions. I've heard from people that don't believe in vaccines. I've heard from people that uh, think the pandemic has been oversold and 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 that our rules have been too much. And so we do our best to hear those you know, respectfully and, and, and allow that conversation to happen. But by and large, I, I hear from more people who say, you know, we should go further with the rules. So it, you know, there's, there's such a, a range of opinions, but overall, I think it's been pretty good. The, the uptake's been pretty good and Yukoners have uh, remained uh, pretty respectful and kind and supportive of each other.
0: Well, uh, here's hoping it continues. We just talked about uh, some of the national averages right now that are starting to trend downwards, and that's good news uh, when we start looking at new cases. So I guess we, one year into this, John, are finally starting to get the message and understand that we got to be sticking to the protocols here. Uh, pleasure having yeah. you on the program. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks, Bill, and 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 thanks for taking the time to uh, to talk to us.
0: Well, continue. Good luck and uh, stay healthy, John. Thanks again. Thanks, Bill. Bye. John Striker, who is the uh, Community Services Minister for the Yukon Territories. Uh, people hopping up a Can you imagine the gall, though, to actually, you know, they're going to be in Beaver, Creek, fly all the way out there just to get a vaccination? I guess they're not going to get the second dose from there. That's for darn sure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, Keystone XL pipeline uh, cancellation, actually the cancellation of the, uh, the permits that uh, the Trump administration signed off on those. Uh, executive order uh, last week, President Biden uh, said, uh-uh, not happening. And uh, it, as you might have expected, caused a lot of pushback on this side of the border. Uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney says the move actually sets a bad starting point for Canada-US relations. For that administration to have canceled without even giving Canada the respect to, let us make our case, They have retroactively withdrawn approval for a pipeline crossing that already exists, which violates the investor protection provisions of NAFTA. Well, I I don't know necessarily that they didn't give them an opportunity. As I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, uh, anybody that follows U.S. politics knew that every one of the Democratic presidential uh, candidates uh, within the last year and a half, including Joe Biden, obviously, said that if they were elected, they were going to kill this project. And they got elected, and they've killed the project. So it shouldn't really come as a surprise. But does this cancellation deal a fatal blow to the oil industry in Alberta, as some are suggesting? Let's bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good morning. Good to have you on the show today. Glad to be with you today, Bill. You weren't shocked by this decision by the president, were you?
3: Well, no, and, and you've laid out a couple of key reasons. Uh, he was vice president to President Obama when President Obama killed the pipeline back in 2015. Now, yes, uh, along comes Donald Trump, and he, uh, whatever, whatever Obama wanted, he tried to change, <laughs> so he gave it a green light. And my advice at the time was build just as far and as fast as you can. I think this is why Premier Kenney invested $1.5 billion of Albertans' money in the project last year, even loaned the project another 5 or $6 billion, and even that was his advice. Build, 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 build. The theory was that if a new president was elected who was not necessarily pipeline-friendly, but it was 90% done, it was almost there, well, you wouldn't cancel it at that point. The problem was that last summer, it was July, the u.s. supreme court halted construction on the american side basically citing that there were some environmental uh... assessments that weren't done appropriately there were some uh... first nations consultations that were not done appropriately what have you so they said cease and desist so when joe biden got elected and then ascended to the presidency it wasn't that hard for him to cancel a project that was maybe at best thirty forty percent complete now friday we had a phone call with uh... Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, we don't know the actual details of that call. If I was the Prime Minister, I would uh, again ask Mr. Biden to say, "Is there any way we could resurrect the Keystone XL pipeline? For instance, maybe it's the routing. Maybe you think it goes through some protected areas. Maybe we could go around this lake and underneath that stream rather than something else." But I would also have said, if if you really feel this is it, Joe, that there is no no going forward with it, we've had a company, many companies, invest significant billions of dollars to construct what they have constructed can they at least get compensation and i think that's one thing especially now that you've made it retroactive they didn't do anything wrong for the last four years they were following government policy you've changed the policy i do think there's a case here for them to get some compensation but i think really with biden in charge uh, the likelihood of keystone now being built is next to zero
0: and, and the ambassador, the Canadian ambassador to the United States uh, made those comments, of course, over the weekend, uh, suggesting that, uh, that's uh, Kirsten Hillman, by the way, that uh, it's time to move on. I uh, don't necessarily like the decision, but uh, they seem pretty adamant about it. And that, that seems to be the, the, the thought about this. It's interesting, though, Marvin, last week I talked with uh, one of our global reporters it was down in Washington covering what's been going on. And I asked her. I said, "Jennifer, what's 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 the reaction to the cancellation?" She says, "Nobody cares down here. It's <laughs> it's it's not an issue in the United States." And, and she's been in the states for a long time, uh, covering U.S. politics for us on Global. And uh, she says, "No big deal." As a matter of fact, she, you noticed uh, when you know President Biden started talking about all the executive orders he was going to issue, uh, he he rarely mentioned and barely mentioned the the yeah. cancellation of the pipeline because it's just not on any, anybody's radar there.
3: Yeah. Now a couple of things on that. Obviously. Um, uh, Uh, cancelling the pipeline is is, is less important, for instance, for the average person than having the United States uh, rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. I think that's a much bigger issue that caught our attention. Um, But I'll also say that cancelling the pipeline does not mean that Alberta oil is not going to find its way into the United States. Alberta oil from the tar sands is going to the United States today, but it's not going by pipeline, it's going by train car Nearly half a million train cars a day are making their way into the United States. Personally, personally, I think that pipelines are a more efficient way of doing it and less prone to some of the things that we've seen. We in Canada live through Lac-Megantic, where one derailment destroyed a town and tremendous fires and what have you. I think it's safer to do it in a pipeline, but if you don't want to build a pipeline, fine, but that oil is not going to remain in the ground. It'll still be removed. The problem for Alberta is because shipping uh, oil by train car is more expensive, you actually get paid less per barrel than you would with a pipeline, because the person buying it has got to adjust the price for the transportation mode. So, uh, I, you know, it will still get its way there, and, and certainly the United States views Canada as part of its national supply question. The United States is not completely self-sufficient in oil. It is self-sufficient in energy that's because it exports coal to other parts of the world. So if you take the net of what it exports versus what it imports, it actually now is a, a neutral on energy, but it needs Canadian oil. But they view it as a safe alternative, say, to Venezuelan oil or Nigerian oil or Saudi Arabian oil.
0: Well, yeah, simply because there's more political stability here than there is in some of those exactly. countries that you just mentioned. And, uh, and and that can change at the drop of a hat. You're absolutely right. What, what about the idea? I want to talk about a couple of options, because I've watched a lot of the, the comments, commentators are uh, talking about this over the weekend, of course, uh, after the especially after the phone call between the Prime Minister and the President. And and they, uh, almost to a person, Marvin, made the same point you just made, that this is not the, the end of the industry. It's going to cost more to, to send it down there. Uh, but as one professor from the University of Alberta said over the weekend, so that he said the amount of oil we're sending down there has actually increased over the last 18 months or so. It's, so it's not as if they're turning the tap off here. But What's what? What would stop Canada from simply saying, "Okay, we'll build the pipeline to the border," because uh, they showed a map of the United States there with the, the the other pipelines that are already in existence. We always tend to think of this and think, "Boy, that's that's great." There are thousands and thousands of miles yeah. of pipelines all over the United States. Yeah. Uh, w- would it be problematic for them to simply tap into the border and say, "Okay, let's let's hook up with this one and let it take it all the way in"?
3: yeah so let me let me come at that a couple of ways if you don't mind bill Keystone sure. x l was first proposed in two thousand and five, so that's sixteen years ago and when it was proposed, it had a it was a four part construction project. Three parts are completed, and those first three parts were linking Alberta oil through various pipelines in other ways. but the fourth part this was the most controversial part was a net new pipeline basically from the oil sands due south and then crossing into nebraska at which point it would link up to an existing pipeline and take the oil from nebraska all the way down to the gulf coast which is where the most of the oil refineries are and that's the pipeline that's got us problems so if we built the part from the alberta oil sands down to the border with the united states the problem is on that route there isn't a pipeline there you've got to connect it to nebraska I, I don't want to tell you it's Omaha exactly, but it's one of those kinds of cities in Nebraska. That's where it links up. And if you don't have the last part, that first part doesn't help you all that much. And that's why I think um, if, if that was the goal, was to take it to the border and then at that at the border – Link it to a pipeline, you would have had a different route chosen, and and so I don't I don't think that's necessarily in the cards, but I think it's also fair to say that um, when we talk about things like a vision of a net neutral on carbon uh, lifestyle by the year 2050, I think that's very doable. But that's 30 years from now. In the meantime, we still have vehicles that need gasoline we have plastics that need to be created we have other products we make from petroleum and and we aren't going to turn that off today or tomorrow or six months from now we are gradually over a thirty year period going to change so if i look at the alberta oil industry i think there's still going to be the need for the alberta oil industry in fact, even 30 years from now, when we reduce our dependence on oil as a source of fuel in favor of other things, we're still going to need oil. Oil is, is part of our lives, but perhaps not at the same volume. So the challenge for them is to sort of reimagine themselves in the context of the world of the future as opposed to the world of today. And even, even Jason Kenney has said that Alberta wants to spend money on new energy technologies so that those people who lose their jobs in the oil fields one way might find themselves uh, uh, you know, getting jobs in another green energy connection in another place. So it's all part of slow evolution as opposed to radical change.
0: What part, if any, does the uh, the twinning of the pipeline uh, heading over to the Pacific Coast have to do with this? Is that that a potential alternative?
3: Yeah. Well, I I, I think it's interesting if if you looked at investment strategies. Jason Kenney in Alberta bet on the the, uh, Keystone XL pipeline, and there the problem was he wasn't in control of that. He could only control things to the border with the U.S., whereas the Canadian government bet on Trans Mountain. And that is totally within Canada. Uh, Just to remind people, again, that's a pipeline that starts near the oil sands but crosses uh, the Rockies and brings the oil to a terminal in Vancouver from which it can be put on boats or it can go further south through a pipeline into the northwestern United States. It's an existing pipeline, so there is a Trans Mountain today, and it's full of oil every single day. And what the federal government did is, they bought the company and they've been working to build a twin that's a little bigger over roughly the same landscape. Uh, and that one is going ahead and is happening. And we think it will uh, start hitting the ground and we'll actually see oil transmitted by it by 2022, uh, possibly 2023. I haven't heard an update as to whether COVID has slowed construction or not. Uh, And that's still happening. So, again, if I'm Alberta, I'm not happy about Keystone, but I I still am. There is going to be a new pipeline, and we're going to see an alternative to train car oil uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, The federal government got it right. Alberta got it wrong.
0: Uh, and, and there's some politicking going on here. Let's be honest about this too. I mean, you know, Jason Kennedy is uh, Kenny brothers is, is having some problems in Alberta right now because the COVID va- va- program and everything else his popularity has plummeted in the last year and a half or so. Right. Uh, and and boy, if you ever want to make friends uh, with the, the voters in Alberta, just say you hate the, the Trudos and say you hate people that are against pipelines. So I mean, I, the, so he's he's playing this as much as he can. I'm 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 not suggesting he's insincere about his concern about this, but this is not a fatal blow. That but this is an opportunity for. For him to score some political points and start looking for some options here but the your points well taken though marvin the industry in alberta is not going away anytime soon and and any downturn there i think has got a lot more to do with with covid than it does with the, the p- cancellation of the pipeline
3: Yes, or world oil prices. Mind you, world oil prices have come back, Uh, as you know. Looking here locally at the pumps now, uh, oil—excuse me—gasoline is over a dollar a liter, dollar six, dollar seven, because the price of a barrel of oil has recovered to almost, almost fifty-five dollars. There was a point in March, April of 2020 where you couldn't give oil away. Oil prices actually went negative. Who'd ever seen that in their lifetime? But they have nicely recovered through all of this. Um, so, I, yeah, I think Jason Kenney's complaint is part politicking. Uh, when he says, uh, you know, you didn't even give us a chance to make our case, you've you, you got to be kidding. You know, with, the case has been well made. It's been made for 15 years. There isn't anything we can say that hasn't been said before. Many people in the United States are uh, who are back in government uh, come from the uh, Obama years. They had all heard the cases. They knew the cases. Uh, and, and I think, in fact, in a way... Uh, maybe, maybe uh, Joe Biden helped Mr. Trudeau out because it's Biden who killed the pipeline. It wasn't Trudeau who killed the pipeline. So uh, let's move on. Let's find other ways we can deal with this. Let's find other futures for all this and focus our energies in other ways. And I think that would be well advised to Mr. Kenny as well. There's still so much potential out there and so many things you can do. Okay. Plan A is gone, but hopefully you had a plan B and a plan C.
0: Well, exactly, and I know he was making some noise and so was Premier Mo in Saskatchewan about you know s- s- trade sanctions against the United States because of this retaliatory trade sanctions. Uh, we don't want to go down that road, do we? I mean, there's a lot of other things to discuss here, uh, which I know they did in part uh, with their phone conversation, the Prime Minister and the, and the President the other day, about the Buy American policy, and it, it sounds as if uh, President Biden's going to try to be flexible about that, like, like ba- Obama was a few years ago, too. Uh, y- you don't want to start building walls and getting people ticked off at you at this stage, I wouldn't think.
3: Well, uh, you know, we just had an administration under Mr. Trump who who seemed quite willing to put tariffs on just about anything at any time, under the guise of national security. That was supposed to be really for wartime endeavors and and fighting trade battles. That's not the same as fighting a real physical battle, as you go. And and I don't I don't think we want to have the holdover of policy from the Trump years for the Biden years. It's a different administration let's register our concerns let's meet let's see where we have and and frankly again if i'm interested in the canadian economy to the extent joe biden wants to spend money on american infrastructure i want to make sure canadian companies have a chance to bid on any of that infrastructure as they should through nafta i don't think a trade sanction at this point helps in any way and and but i will say instantly it's like we have just wiped off the four years of trump for instance Traditionally, it had always been the case that the president of the United States, their first call to a world leader was to Canada. That happened on Friday. Traditionally, their first visit to outside of the country is to Canada. That's going to happen next month. We're going back to the way it was. I want to see more of that. That was the relationship with the United States that that I understood and that we could work with quite easily. What we had with Trump, we were just like walking on eggshells every day, and I don't think that was healthy for anybody Even if it's not perfect, our relationship with the United States was stable, and that helps us a lot as we try to recover from COVID.
0: Well, yeah, and, and you know, to suggest with time to move on is that I don't think that means capitulation. It just means that, you know, we've got other things that we have to look at here, too. And and I think they actually made some headway to do with that program, too, because uh, from the, the reporting we've seen on the, the meeting between the president and the prime minister, uh, President Biden seemed to indicate that this Buy American thing was essentially government procurement uh, contracts. Uh, and, and that's not small potatoes by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it looks as if he had left the door open there for further discussion about it.
3: Well, and Bill, specifically, when they talk about buy American in the United States, what they're primarily saying is we're not going to let Chinese companies bid on these. We're not letting Russian companies bid on these. We're not letting Indian companies bid on these things because you know we want to see this money help us in North America. When you mention Canada, at least for most Americans, they think we're part of the club, we're part of the fraternity, and oh no, we we don't want to keep Canada, Canada's not the problem, but if we're buying American, we just don't want it to be from those Asian countries or maybe European countries, so you know, we have that funny little relationship and we just want to keep that relationship as we go, and I, I think Mr. Biden gets that, I'm not sure Mr. Trump ever did.
0: Yeah, I mean, as I say, and Biden, as, as vice president, of course, was part of that whole Obama thing, which really kind of morphed into a by North American, uh, because right. there were a lot of exceptions made in that situation, and, and we seem to come out of that okay. So, uh, as they say in the biz, more to come on this, I guess, right, Marvin?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's early days in the Biden administration. Remember, the inauguration just happened <laughs> Just a week ago, last Wednesday, so it's a little early to see which way the tea leaves are going, but I I just feel like there's a fresh wind blowing in Washington, and let's try to build on that. And Unfortunately, Keystone XL is a casualty, but maybe it is best to be seen in the rearview mirror and then uh, anticipate new things to come.
0: Well, and the other element to this, too, I know we're just about out of time here, is as you mentioned, it was a court decision that actually held up uh, the construction in the states, and I don't think that's been resolved. I know they've made some modifications to what they wanted to do, but it may well have gone on for years, notwithstanding what the president did today, or last week.
3: Yeah, no, exactly. As we know here in Canada, uh, uh, because each First Nations, I could get eight out of ten of them to agree, but those last two can have us over a barrel, and that is some of the challenges as you do this. So if this isn't going to work... Let's find something that will and and keep moving forward as best we can.
0: Over a barrel. The crude oil metaphors continue. Okay. Uh, Marvin, as always, thanks so much. Great talking with you today. Thank you, Bill.